0: All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. welcome back to another episode of Your Brain on Science with me, Elena. Today, we're going to take some time to get into drug policy and what that looks like for psychedelics. This topic is something that has always interested me when I first started learning about the history of psychedelics in undergrad. I was reading a section in my Neuropharmacology of Drugs book, and I just remember getting so mad about the Controlled Substances Act um, and just... I'm excited to talk about it today, Um, air my grievances, if you will. So there's a lot that goes into policymaking and these decisions regarding the legalization and decriminalization of drugs. Uh, It's extremely daunting, to be honest, but for those unfamiliar with the way drug scheduling in the United States works, uh, that's where I'm located, and so that's kind of where we're going to be focused on talking about our policy today. But the Controlled Substances Act is something that was enacted in 1970. And this is classifying uh, different drugs into five schedules. So you have schedule one, which is the worst, meaning that they have no medical use and high potential for abuse. And this is where psychedelics end up landing. And some people might not be surprised in are shaking their heads at home, but we'll get into why this is problematic and how we can maybe fix it. So let's get to it. So today I've brought on two friends and colleagues of mine to help us get into the discussion of what psychedelic drug policy looks like. So joining me today is Lindsey Galbo Toma and Elijah Ullman and they're both part of Students for Sensible Drug Policy and bring their own unique experiences and perspectives to the table when it comes to this topic. So welcome both of you, I'm so happy to have you on. Um, Before we get into all the fun questions, I just wanted to give you each a moment to introduce yourselves And talk a little bit about your background in policy and kind of how you got where you are now generally so uh, we can start with you lindsay if you want
1: all right yes thank you so much elena for inviting me to talk with you today um so i am a fifth year doctoral candidate at wake forest university and this is where i remind everybody that none of my comments or opinions represent the institution um but i am getting my phd in the integrative physiology and pharmacology program and i currently do research that investigates how social factors influence alcohol drinking trajectories and how alcohol impacts executive function. Um, But I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, which has been hit very hard by the overdose epidemic and have really just been kind of surrounded by drugs ever since high school and been really interested in them. So I decided to pursue a career studying them. Um, And when I came to Wake Forest, I was made aware of Students for Sensible Drug Policy or we lovingly refer to it as SSDP by my best friend, Sean. So I decided to start a chapter here. Um, So I served as the president for a couple of years for our chapter of SSDP, but now I've focused my time co-directing the Science Policy Council with Eli, um, which is a part of SSDP Nationals Federal Policy Council. And I've also had the pleasure since moving to Winston-Salem to volunteer regularly with our community syringe service program, Twin City Harm Reduction Collective and the Forsyth Regional Opioid and Substance Use Team, which is a branch of the the county health department. Um, So just with all of my personal experience, and then these other direct service opportunities in my research, it's definitely helped shape my policy perspectives. Um, And so that's kind of how I got to where I am now. Awesome. Thanks so much. You know, I always appreciate when people can take
0: like personal experiences and bring them into something positive, like volunteering or like a career like you
2: have. So that's awesome.
0: Thank you. Uh, Elijah, your turn.
2: Yes, absolutely, so thank you for having me. And like Lindsay said, uh, what is said here is not representative of my institution, which is Emory University. I'm a fourth year PhD candidate in the Molecular and Systems Pharmacology Program studying NMDA receptor um, pharmacology and physiology. And my research looks at the mechanisms of ionic permeation through the NMDA receptor and how allosteric modulators can change these. so i I do uh pure uh electrophysiology work which i am an evangelical for um i got into (laughs) i I, I got into drug policy in 2012 i think in about september um, when i was a sophomore in high school um i heard of students for sensible drug policy and i remember talking to my older brother who's um 13 years older than me um about it and he said that he was in um a chapter of SSDP, I believe, at either Ohio State or University of California, Santa Barbara. And then I told my dad that there was going to be a SSDP conference at CU Boulder, a regional conference, and he actually took me there. I was, like I said, I was a sophomore in high school. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it, it, yeah, exactly. And and my family's always been fairly politically active, so, so he was more than happy to take me to this. Um, soon after, I started my, uh, one of the nation's first, or one of SSDP's first high school chapters, and then later, a um, college chapter. But our high school chapter was largely focused on harm reduction issues, because, as we all know, you know high schoolers <laughs> don't always make the best choices, and so um, we thought that it would be a good idea to try and provide harm reduction info and, and how to how um, how to teach people how to be safe if they were going to make choices. Um, but back in the mid to, uh, 2010s, there was an SSDP project called the Amplify project, which was, um, which was similar to like what, what dance safe kind of does now where they would set up a booth at, at concerts, but we had like clean snorting straws, drug information cards, um, big five gallon jugs of water, um, condoms, and it provided a safe space at concerts. And then this really showed me how important harm reduction initiatives can be and how much of, uh, uh, impact it can make on people's lives. Um, and then when I got to grad school, I, I knew I wanted to focus um, a lot more on my graduate studies and wasn't so sure about starting a third chapter. Uh, and right about then, SSDP was looking into, was was reorganizing due to leadership changes and was making these policy councils, um, so individual issue groups. And that's how Lindsay and I met um and we formed the science research policy council um and this is how you know we felt that we could best um, use what we're learning in graduate school because we're both pharmacologists and therefore are very uniquely qualified to talk about how drugs work on a scientific basis we have a really unique perspective when it comes to lobby meetings on the issue
0: yeah that makes sense pharmacologists in the house also so
1: (laughs) that's fun It was actually pretty cool because um, SSDP's Federal Policy Council, um, they kind of create like sub issue groups based on different policy, federal policy initiatives and reducing barriers to science research wasn't really a federal campaign initiative for them. And so Eli and I pitched that to them and they jumped on board and it's been really fun since.
0: Yeah, that's a really cool initiative, and and I'm glad you uh, brought that up, because I was going to ask, can one or both of you like talk a little bit more about um, your work at SSDP and in within those initiatives, and kind of like, what are the main
1: goals? I mean, SSDP is an international drug policy-focused organization. Um, they have hundreds of chapters in, I can't remember how many different countries, like 30-something, I think.
2: Yeah, I think um, it's just about...
1: Yeah, and so they put together the U.S. Federal Policy Council, I think maybe like three or four years ago, um, and yeah, again, so we we pitched to them to um, to create reducing barriers to science as a as an issue group. Um, so we've really focused on again, uh, you know, what Eli was saying is like leveraging our pharmacology backgrounds um, to to advocate for or against certain drug policies that are related to science. So for example, one of the first things that we did um, was we put together a list of all of the Congress people in the Senate and the House with STEM backgrounds um, into a spreadsheet, which we thought would be really good. Uh, you know, Say you have this person who has a STEM background, but they're, they're opposing this piece of legislation that we would like them to support. Well, now that we know that they have a STEM background, maybe we can have a different type of a conversation with them. Um, mm-hmm. because of that. So that was one of the first things that we did, I think. And then mm-hmm. we've published quite a few action alerts um uh for other people to uh interact with and hopefully get involved in. Um most of them have been around uh asking for increased NIH and NSF funding, which is obviously very important when we think about drug policy mm-hmm. um, and things like harm reduction and we organized a couple of lobby days um one was around the more Act, um which was the i forget what it stands for marijuana opportunity reinvestment and expungement act i think and then also the equal act which actually just recently died in the senate which was mm-hmm. to reduce um the sentencing disparity between crack and power cocaine which yeah pharmacologically the same so that was sad to see that die again um And yeah, our most recent success, though, was this summer when we submitted a hearing request to the DEA in opposition of their proposal to schedule DOI and DOC as Schedule 1 drugs. Um, And for those who are listening who don't know, DOI and DOC are long-lasting psychedelics that are used in basic and preclinical research to understand mechanisms of psychedelics and also things like serotoner like serotonin, excuse me serotonergic mechanisms um, i don't know if eli wants to add anything
2: yeah and and right and this is how we um got into contact with with you elena because you yes. actually work with uh with doi <laughs> so you can speak on this far better far better than i can uh i've mm-hmm. never used it in my lab i'm not a psychedelics researcher but um we figured we wanted to put together a really diverse coalition of, of people to petition the DEA, um, so people that are also working with it, um, as well as, as Lindsay and I, um, so that we can make a really robust case to the DEA and say, hey, let's not put these things in schedule one status. They're hugely important um, mm-hmm. for psychedelic research and, and future depression research and all of that. So we, we thought that it would be a detriment to those areas if those were placed on schedule one status.
0: Yeah. And so for the listeners who are new to the podcast um we all together um worked uh towards this uh, motion and hearing at the dea and i uh, published some blog posts about it uh when this was all going on over the summer so if you are interested in learning more about um kind of what we all did there and everybody's roles uh, you can check out the blog posts on our website and i believe that ssdp also posted
2: a little po- like blog about it too, right? They, on their website. They did. We made their top 10 um, policy changes this year.
0: Yeah. Uh, list,
2: which was amazing. That was a great mm-hmm. accomplishment. Um, and I also wanna add that the two others that, that filed this with us were Bhakti Sarush at NK ties lab at the Salk Institute. And then Danny Lesberg, who recently graduated from the program that I'm at in Emory um, University as well. So this was a really uh, a big group effort.
0: Yeah, for sure. They're both brilliant scientists that I now have the pleasure of knowing um, and being connected with because of all of this. So that was something that one brought us all together um, and got some shit done. So <laughs> um, so you kind of alluded to um, having psychedelics in schedule one is problematic. So do you want to talk a little bit about, I guess, why that is for research, but also just for overall people who choose to partake in, uh, psychedelic, just recreationally as well.
1: Yeah. So I think that, um, one of the reasons it's problematic is so, so I'm sure that you've talked about on this podcast and for people who are listening, who may not know, um, if drugs are scheduled to schedule one, that means that they have, um, abuse liability and no medical value. And so, Um, You know, one of the reasons why I think psychedelics being in schedule one is problematic is because the abuse liability just doesn't really exist. Um, People don't really take psychedelics regularly like they do other drugs, with the exception of those who are purposefully microdosing. Mm -hmm. Um, And yes, there can be adverse outcomes for people who take psychedelics just like with any other drug. But that happens, too, with drugs that are completely legal, like alcohol. And, you know, especially in the case of alcohol, way, way it happens way more often, right? Way more frequently. Um, So again, like the abuse liability, I feel just doesn't really exist for psychedelics as much as it does for other stuff. Um, But it is important to note too, that they are again, like powerful drugs. And as you also said, schedule one is a huge barrier to research uh, because you have to have a schedule one DEA license as a researcher to even obtain a Schedule One drug to use in the laboratory, whether you're doing basic or preclinical research or research with human subjects, and just obtaining the license is really difficult for the first place. In the first place, um, so that you can even get the drug, and so it really hinders the progression of research, which prevents scientists and researchers from being able to get a potential pharmacological treatment for various severe mental health disorders to people who could really be benef- benefiting from it.
2: Right. And here's another crazy part of this to me is that you need the schedule one license, even if the amount that you of whatever drug that you have in the lab, um, let's say LSD um, that you have is nowhere near enough for a human dose. So if all you have uh, of LSD, let's say 10 micrograms or five micrograms, and you're planning on using um, it in uh, animal studies, right? Um, That dose is not won't do anything for a human, but you would still need a Schedule One license. So it's mm-hmm. presuming that humans are going to take that. There's not even, an, but there's and there's not even enough of the drug to do anything to a human. So it doesn't make sense. It's just an unnecessary barrier.
0: Right. And uh, another thought that comes along with that is, with the Schedule One license, uh, you can only the government tells you as researchers basically how much of the drug you can have at one time. So, and it's within certain drug classes as well so you can't have more than the set amount that they give you so if you're doing a new study and you are like trying to order more so you don't run out like you can't potentially do that based on those rules so that's just something else that i recently learned um that i found fascinating
2: and stupid (laughs) yeah it's it's also wild to me that the dea sets production quotas for all sorts of substances like let's say uh Adderall uh, or mm-hmm. any amphetamines. Um, so we're in a crisis. There's a shortage of that right now, but the companies aren't able to make more of it to meet that mm-hmm. crisis because of uh, the DEA's restrictions. And they're presuming, essentially, how it sounds to me, that everyone who's taking it is abusing it. Then, um, right? That they're like a they're a police organization, not a medical organization. Mm-hmm. Right. It's absolutely wild that they have the authority to undermine physicians.
1: Yeah, another thing, too, with having to obtain a schedule to to get these drugs in the first place is, like, I think that there's a lot of people, a lot of drug researchers who have personal experiences, which, you know, like myself, which is what leads them to wanting to pursue a career in drugs. And if you have a criminal history or have ever been convicted of a felony, then you cannot obtain a schedule one DEA license so that's problematic because you can't get the license but it's also problematic because then you're excluding people with lived experience from being able to participate in research about people with experience you know what I mean yeah that's a really good point and
0: I think that's something a lot of people don't think about is how the policing of drug use is just problematic for not only like people being in jail for nonviolent drug crimes, but also barring people from making a difference that have that lived experience. Right.
2: right. Yeah, science has always been to me something that is seen as like in a way barrier free and that it's something that everyone should be able to participate in and that it's a universal language. Data is data and you can read it no matter where you're from. And we should be trying to bring it in As many people to that as possible but if we're excluding them based on these lived experiences we're missing out on on bringing in different groups that might have different ideas um that that could be innovative so it's it's just silly uh and and contrary to the point of, of science which has been to generate information that is for the public good it is not in the public's interest to exclude people based on their living lived experiences, at least not in my mind.
0: Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> yeah. um, so I guess that being said, what what is sensible drug policy for psychedelics look like for you guys? Like, what do you what are your thoughts on that? Do you think psychedelics should be scheduled at all? Or do you have any ideas? <laughs>
2: I I thought about this for a lot of years. I, I wrote an essay for my bioethics class actually on amphetamines, and I argued that they should be legal for all who want to take them. Um, and one of my arguments in that was, um, well, the Air Force was giving pilots dexedrine, which is uh, and the army said, it's okay, we're authorizing it. We're the moral <laughs> authority here, um, or the Air Force, uh, not the army the Air Force said we're the moral authority, it's okay to give to our pilots and it's um, a good thing to do because it's in our best interest. Um, But why aren't the average person afforded that? Um, I think, you know, (laughs) amphetamines do have their own issue. So so I'll concede that. (laughs) But, um, you know, I think people should be able to make their own choice. Though I think we're going (laughs) to... We have an interesting bioethics discussion incoming, um, I think, and we kind of, I'm not sure if we've reached it for uh, cannabis yet, either where things are available for both prescription and for recreation. Mm
0: -hmm. There's
2: no other drugs that I can think of that are like that. Like you can't just commercially buy amphetamine. The only way you get it uh, legally is through a prescription. So we haven't had to have this discussion about, what a system looks like when you have things available, available for both medical use and recreational use. So I'm not sure if they should be scheduled at all, but my, I, I, I don't know if you can, um, if you can prescribe a drug, if it's not scheduled, I, I, I really, I, I don't recall. Um, And if that's the case that you can't prescribe without a schedule, then it should be assigned a schedule.
0: Yeah, something like four or something, you know.
2: Right, something low so you can get access to it, but then so, I mean, I think that they should be uh, legalized. Um, People should be able to make autonomous decisions. We have that with alcohol. Um, Someone uh, arguing against might say, well, we've had alcohol use for thousands of years and that's true but we've also there's also plenty of evidence um, suggesting that uh, humans have been using psychedelics for thousands of years Mm -hmm. many cultures across the world have some form of mind-altering sacrament so human this our history with them isn't just since the 1940s um, right we've had experience with psychedelic drugs, mind-altering drugs, for literally thousands of years. Um, And I think humans should be left to make that decision whether they want to use them for themselves. So I I think that they should be available. I'm not sure about a scheduled status, but if it needs to be scheduled, then a lower scheduled status, four or five.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I definitely... I definitely agree with a lot of what you said like i think it's complicated um i mean i am i have found myself in the camp that all drugs should be decriminalized um or Mm -hmm. legalized um i don't know that we'll see either federally for quite some time but you know in an ideal world but i do think that like psychedelic legalization should be taken slowly because again these are very powerful drugs and they shouldn't be taken by individuals who aren't meeting some criteria, predetermined criteria of what healthy is, um, unless it's with supervision with somebody who ideally is experienced in helping people um, with adverse psychedelic um, events. Um, And, but decriminalization and descheduling first, or at least reducing its scheduling status would allow us to make sure that people aren't being penalized or incarcerated for possession or use. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it also... Helps researchers, right? It helps break up that barrier to researching these drugs. It can get the drugs into the hands of scientists so that we can further consider what we should do with its, you know, um, scheduled status, or if there should be one. Um, and if they are legalized, you know, I think like alcohol, tobacco, and cannabis, um, they need to be regulated, right? So these are the benefits of a regulated supply. There's a ton of psychedelic research chemicals out there. And if people aren't checking their drugs, then they don't know if what they purchase from their friend is actually what they're consuming. Um, And so regulation can help ensure that you are taking what you are told that you purchased. Um, But there's always going to be a black market for drugs. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, regulation also helps ensure, too, that um, we can maybe try to, like, reduce the amount of, like, psychedelics, like, get into the hands of children or young adults and make sure that it's these healthy adults who are um, fully aware of the risks and stuff like that when consuming them. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's complicated.
0: I know it's always more complicated than it seems like when you first think about it, you're like, Oh yeah, well for sure. Right. Everything should just be, you know, out there. Things shouldn't be sick. I don't know why we have a drug schedule. Like, but then once you start thinking about all the nuances and all of the little things that you have to think about when you're in policymaking, it becomes more of a web than like a straight line.
2: So, So, yeah. I mean, my question is who dispenses them and, and the, is it a, um, right, does it just a doctor write you a recreational prescription for it? Or can you just go to a pharmacy and maybe show them uh, results from, like, a physical that you took within, I don't know, some amount of time and show that you're healthy and you don't have some health conditions? I don't Or, like, don't a psych know.
0: exam. Like, like, I know, like, EMTs have to get a psych exam before they, like go into the field so is that like something that would happen with psychedelics right to go see but, your your mind physical essentially but who
2: agrees on who, right. who's going to be in charge of making that um exam it right. could be so stringent that like nobody gets it um or right. you could i could see in capitalism somebody paying off the person taking oh, it yeah. or r- right to like give you preferred access to it I don't know. It, it's it's really we're having to make a whole new system, so it's complicated. But I understand. Me just saying it's complicated produces <laughs> no answer, so that's not that's not good either. Um, I mean,
0: the open conversation though is enough to to spark thought, and then maybe someone will figure it
2: out. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, because like adding on to or piggybacking off what you were just saying, and like what I was hinting to, I guess a minute ago too, is if there's always going to be a black market. Right. And so however we decide to maybe make it so you can walk to a pharmacy and get like your dose of 125 micrograms of LSD and they deny you because you didn't meet some predetermined criteria of healthy, even though I think that there should be something like that. Um, well, okay. You can just go find it online or from somebody else, but now you Mm -hmm. don't even know if what you're getting is LSD. It could be like, XYZ 012. Like, yeah, there's so many yeah. like 25,000 different drugs out there. It could be literally anything. So, a lot to consider.
0: Yeah. And I know, like, uh, I think it's what that psychedelics are supposed to be, or psilocybin and MDMA, I guess, are supposed to be legal by 2024 federally, is the new uh, recent headline. I think this past year. Right. I don't know if you guys are feeling like that or
2: i whatever stage it goes through i just don't think people should be getting arrested at the very least for possession of them but i'm happy to to see them finally getting unshackled from schedule (laughs) one status and again that allows greater access for scientists to these compounds
1: yeah i think that i think that um legalization for medical use is also complicated right because as research continues to come out and be published and if and then if it if it is legalized for medical use and all these people are being cured of their mental health issues or whatever um it might give the perception that these drugs are safe and that anybody can do them or like Mm -hmm. Hey, I can't afford to go to the doctor for these MDMA sessions, but I can get MDMA, and like my friends can help me or something, and um, maybe that works, but maybe it doesn't. And... Well, we already
0: see that happening too with like the recent mainstream media coverage of psychedelics. Now you can
1: microdose yeah. at home. Like... Yep. <sighs> it's or just like hot. any anybody who wants to decides that they can call themselves a shaman now and yeah, buy a resort in a South American country.
2: I met too many of those at Halloween this past year, and I—I I just, it hurts my brain. Yeah, I, it's like,
1: halting. Yeah. Like, I, I,
2: how do we know that these people are any good? Right? They're just saying.
1: Well, they're both. Like,
2: <laughs> right. They're just saying that they're spiritually healed, that they can guide you. i, I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. Um, yeah. But I'm like very worried about how what capitalism is going to do to these, because now we just see all sorts of headlines that like, oh yeah, psychedelics are the next de- um, big, or like the next cure for depression, um, or it's just like a big hype cycle. And I believe you've talked about this on previous episodes, Elena. It, oh, yeah. it, it, if we just only now show good coverage, then it's gonna lead to um, a image that isn't realistic. Like these things won't work for every everybody. That's not how pharmacology works in the very slightest. There is no mm-hmm. cure for everything. Um, Right. So, um, we need to take a realistic approach. Uh, I'm glad that all the coverage isn't so doom and gloom now, like that's surely a lot better. I know my, my parents are old, who are old hippies are surely very glad about that. And, (laughs) and so are all their, uh, old friends. Um, so that they're delighted to finally see, you know, wow, we can finally actually talk about our experiences with just like anybody now and it doesn't matter. Or and it even seems within um, academic institutions that like, you can talk about these things now and not be looked down on. Um, It's totally fine. So they're getting more and more accepted. But I do worry that as we do this, we're going to forget about, let's say, psilocybin's Cultural history, and we're going to erase that um, purposefully or not.
0: Yeah, and I think you just got at something that I definitely wanted to highlight when I was talking to you guys, and that's how the the changes in attitude through either changes in policy or just changes in the science and this mainstream media coverage. How it's affecting attitudes overall towards psychedelics and other drugs. Like it's doing a great job to erase stigma associated with drug use, which that's awesome. And hopefully that kind of trickles down to um, stigmas associated with other drugs that people use. But then it also highlights that there's an issue of it becomes too, I guess too mainstream, maybe not, maybe isn't the right word, but um, it's, it's being adapted for Western, like, culture where it has started like you mentioned like well oh, the cat has something to say
2: <laughs> put <laughs> where on. it put the cat on.
0: I know right um where we're we're westernizing this and we're taking away what it truly means and the sacredness of some of these plants and these plant medicines.
1: Yeah I think it's interesting to see how changes in psychedelic policy affect you know other people's opinions about these drugs and other drugs overall. <clears throat> Um, and, and I, one thing that I think is interesting that I feel like I'm observing more and more lately is people and again, kind of what you're saying, like westernizing plant medicine and just like the use of the words plant medicine and (laughs) we're like, well, cannabis is okay. And, you know, traditional psychedelics, like psilocybin and stuff, like they're okay because they're plant medicine. And, um, I hate that. I think oh my god that's yeah like that's exceptionalism because <laughs> you know I could go on a tangent about this you know
2: it's what we have in Colorado well what's in Colorado now and and I'm a col- former Colorado resident uh like it, that's what happened with the newest bill to decriminalize them in the state right. DM DMT and and mescaline and psilocybin are illegal but LSD isn't and it's because it's not natural um well it's it nonsense it,
1: but it's also you know the other hand of that too is people are like well these are okay because these are plant medicines but like heroin is bad for you just like heroin is a plant plants, yeah okay, <laughs> plant. so if you want to talk about plant medicines we're going to talk about all of them not just the psychedelic plant medicines so um, does strychnine
2: like, scopolamine like right the list goes on
1: yeah
0: well, and i think that Two is like something I've noticed with psychedelics and how there will be I've seen online and just in different spaces where people will be like think that they're better than another drug user because they use psychedelics and not heroin so yeah. I think that's something I'm definitely seeing now more and I don't like
1: that I yeah. think
0: that you need to you know if you're going to be open and honest about your drug use another person should also be able to do that
1: yeah, exactly. Again, like, you know, circling back to the bodily autonomy and being able to choose what you want to put inside your own body and not feeling stigma towards that. So, yeah, I feel like I feel like attitudes towards it go like can go like that direction where people are just like, well, these are different um, when they're not, you know, I mean, yes, they're different, but, it, you know, especially if you're using the plant medicine thing. But the one good thing, though, about changing drug policies surrounding psychedelics is that hopefully it will give momentum um for you public to realize that schedule one is bullshit and doesn't mean anything Mm -hmm. um, you know we're gonna try to change the the scheduling of these drugs because check it out they're not that dangerous and like when we do you know like cannabis we aren't seeing necessarily like huge surges of Use or new use, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or an increase in adverse outcomes or anything like that. So, if that's the same situation with psychedelics, well, now we can say, well, nothing crazy terrible happened when we legalized cannabis. Nothing crazy happened when we legalized or descheduled psychedelics. So, like, now we can think about the other drugs that are scheduled or in on Schedule One. And, you know, right, this is my yeah. dream. Aim towards legalization of everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um i just wanted to touch briefly back
0: on the uh shamanism and like the plant medicine thing because that uh is something that i've noticed in virginia a lot of times people will discuss psychedelics as sacred plant medicines but they're talking but they don't actually realize which ones are sacred so i just wanted to like highlight that for indigenous populations like there are certain psychedelics that are used for sacrament and then there's psychedelics that people just use so i just think that that's important to point out that if you're trying to talk about plant medicine actually know what you're talking about don't just hijack indigenous culture because it makes you sound cooler (laughs) i guess yeah
1: i was just gonna say you know like i don't You know, I honestly don't know a lot about this topic or, like, enough to speak on it much, but um, I agree with what you said. And I guess what I don't want to see, too, as various groups try to push for um, maybe descheduling or legalization or what have you with psychedelics, like, I I don't want to see people trying to get religious exemption for... Mm -hmm again like non-traditional psychedelic or plant medicines that have been used for hundreds thousands of years like i that kind of like rubs me the wrong way when people are like oh we're gonna start like the church of lsd so that we can use it and not get in trouble like i feel like that's just mocking yeah um, you know the history of psychedelics that have been used
2: but at the same time right isn't what the law it it, that's I, i agree with you i i absolutely agree with you um isn't though the law a mockery as well of any data. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough. I don't think somebody should just be starting a church to get around it. Like, again, I think we all agree, right? These things have, many of these compounds have thousands of years of, of sacred history and ritual associated with them. Um
1: right and that should be protected and yes like I just don't like I don't want to see people trying to like push political like their policy agenda by by trying to like circumvent it by doing things like that but one of the things for me if this all gets legalized and
0: recreational and what have you I think that it's important to have a protection in place for the the plants that are used in a ceremonial way so that people aren't just harvesting them and going out and like they become extinct because that's someone's culture. That's not just your, you know, recreational yeah, thing. Yeah, that's right. Isn't true. that what's happening
2: with the peyote cactus where it takes like, it could take decades to grow? It grows yeah. at a very slow rate. And but then think like San Pedro cactus also produces mescaline but grows far faster. And yeah, so, so that's
0: like one of the main um, concerns. And I think there was some type of legislation in somewhere that was focusing on that. So I just hope that gets adopted kind of widely.
2: Right. I I, I seem to recall reading about some tribal uh, n- n- native groups um, talking about uh, or wishing for exemptions f- for their usage um, and certain protections on the, on the peyote cactus as well.
0: Yeah. It would be great to have um, a native or indigenous person get on the podcast to talk about it. Uh, so if there's anyone out there, hit me up. but um so I guess my last question for you guys and we kind of touched on this a little bit so um I guess what would your ideal drug policy look like in your perfect world and and then um is there any suggestions that you have for people who want to get involved in making changes at a local, state, or federal level with drug policy in general?
2: Um, in terms of what what does psychedelic drug policy look for in my ideal world? It's that um, at the very least, we have decriminalization of all these things so nobody's getting arrested for possession or usage. Uh, mm-hmm. What I would like is for people to have access to the compounds that they would like to ingest. Uh, prob- it will probably be through a pharmacy, you might be able to go into CVS or Walgreens or whatever local pharmacy and pick it up. Um, and hopefully the um, pharmacists and pharm techs are uh, then tra- trained um, via pharmacy school or whatever program that they got trained in in how these things work so they can answer questions just like they would with any other drug. Um, but yeah, I, w- I would like people to have access to them um, Again, it's difficult to say what the world looks like when you have both medical use and recreational use. I mean, it, at least in like Colorado right now, that's how it is for cannabis, mm-hmm. uh, that taxes for medical use are far lower. Um, and I think some states don't even have tax, at, sales tax at all on medical because you shouldn't be taxed on a medicine that's right it's not a recreational (laughs) product it's it's a medicine it's an essential product i can't recall ever getting taxed on the last time i picked up my adderall from cbs um so maybe something of that sort where um you're able to still get these things as a prescription and they're part of a regular therapy session with counselors but if you would like you can uh, take matters into your own hands and go ahead and, and take them at whatever concert you you like <laughs> um, and so as a rabbit de- as a rabbit deadhead it would probably be a uh one of those shows
1: <laughs> yeah i mean I, I i agree with these with what Eli said you know decriminalize legalize regulate um need to be very careful for what types of regulations we're putting in place, whether it's recreational or for medical use, um, especially because people who are pursuing psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, you know, they are probably very vulnerable. And so we need to make sure that all the ethics, ethical considerations are in place Mm -hmm. uh, for those individuals um, and that people are well trained on how to administer these potential medicines. Um, but as far as how people can get involved at making change um, locally or federally, however you wish, uh, my recommendation is just to jump in. Like, you can do it as small or as big as you want. Um, you know, one really easy thing to do is just find some organizations that are passionate about things that you're passionate about, like Students for Simple Drug Policy or Drug Policy Alliance, and sign up for their newsletters and you can read up on topics that they send in their newsletters. They probably have action alerts, which is really easy. You just fill in your information and they send a pre-written email to your congresspeople. Um, if you you know want to dive in a little bit deeper, reach out to these organizations, especially local ones, and see how you can volunteer to help. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of opportunities no matter where your interests lie and of course if anybody wants to reach out for more information about ssdp or anything like that feel free to hit me up or eli
2: yeah, uh,
1: Eli. he'll answer his emails
2: yeah i definitely i i'm pretty i'm pretty quick on them i'm also on twitter um at elijah ullman though i think i'll change it soon to uh ephys cowboy
0: <laughs> I um, love that.
2: yeah thank you uh, danny came up with that name um <laughs> And for the final point that that you said about uh, getting involved in in policy, something that was impressed on on me from a really, really young age, right when I started to get involved with uh, drug policy was that change really does start with one person. It it can start with one person um, having an idea that the systems that are in place aren't the way that they should be, that they have an idea of how to do it better. So Then they talk to another person and then that cascades and it amplifies into a bigger movement, but with the, and then eventually laws are changed. But what that means is that the change can start with one person. I mean, it's so frustrating to hear people, especially within our age, age group. So the 20 to 30 year olds or eight, you know, uh, teenagers to 30 year olds saying, um, nothing I do will matter on the federal scale or local state scale. So I'll never vote or anything like that. It doesn't matter. But, if you care about things getting changed, you just have to get active in some way. And it can be difficult to, to find how to get active, but the information's out there, and you can write your congressperson, or you can write blog posts, you can do letters to the editor for your local papers and all that. And somebody will read it, and then they might contact you and then say, you know, how can, you know, what can we do to make this bigger? Um, so, change, if someone sees a problem, they've got to act on it. It's, it's just so frustrating to hear that someone yeah. believes you know they can't change something because clearly our science policy issue group did change things there there were a lot of public comments on the dea's uh proposed scheduling um, mm-hmm. but but we but right but we had filed that motion for a hearing and that change was just a couple of us doing this and so we we changed the course of what um science research looks like for a whole lot of labs. And I'm not saying that to, to boast, though it is a really neat thing. Boast away. It. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still like it's it's just really wild to me that we actually did something. Like we changed the course of scientific research. We made people's lives easier. And the change really did start with with one. Like I remember that that meeting where it was Lindsay that suggested, hey, let's let's go file to the DEA let's let's actually do this and then th- and then i said huh okay <laughs> yeah i guess we can do this sure let's do it so, and then it was
1: great because when they when they decided to like not move forward with the prehearing trial and we were like so deep into this i was like oh thank god because i don't have time to go to dc <laughs> no oh second. my god yeah
2: <laughs> yeah it was a weight off and i was writing my f31 proposal then yeah. it was it was uh, we had to for that issue we had to get the pretrial info like the day after my f31 was supposed to go in and so it was like how do i possibly juggle both of this oh my (laughs) god um like i am so stressed and so it was good that didn't move forward
1: like it would have been really cool to say that we actually physically testified in front of the DEA, but yeah, like as a fifth year grad student, I'm just like, I don't have time.
2: But DEA, if you're listening, we do have the time. So don't do this again. We will find.
0: Finally- we will make the time. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's like, if you, like you said, like, if you believe that you can actually make the change and you're willing to do so, like we're all busy, we're all in grad school, but we found the time because we are passionate about it. And I think that's something that, is really important. It's like, if you're passionate, you'll find a way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: There's just so much chaos in this world that like, <laughs> right, you got to do, I don't know. You got to do something to make the world brighter.
0: Right. Well, I feel like that's a really good spot to end. It was very inspirational. So thank you, Eli, for that. <laughs> absolutely um and thank you both uh thank you Lindsay and eli for joining me today and i'm really excited um to further our conversation about policy uh to bring it to our listeners and then next week i'm gonna be talking with um someone who's a patent lawyer and does psych patents so we're gonna get a little bit of the other side of things with the policy so um yeah it's been fun so thanks guys Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, take it easy. And if you like what you heard today, please let us know um, and be a part of the conversation. Thanks for listening.